It's possible that the ending of the first verse of that song might have made you a little bit hesitant when we see something talking about acceptance and love, but the reality is, in connection with knowing and following Jesus Christ, true love and unity is actually possible. Our society tends to have a manufactured unity. We're all going to get along and pretend that we don't have disagreements and have everybody say the same things about all the different things that are going on in the world. When in reality, our society is characterized by all kinds of divisions and arguments and fighting, which we pretend to put aside for the sake of, you know, we're all together, we're all in this as one. But the reality is in the church, we can actually put aside our differences over things that are not eternally important because we are united with and in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what does that have to do with Genesis 43 to 45? Well, the reality is that Genesis 43 to 45 is the bringing together of the work that God has been doing in the life of Jacob's family, much like the work that we see in the New Testament that God does as Paul confronts and rebukes the Corinthians about the divisions that are present among them. For the Corinthians, it's fighting over who they like in the church, and who's the best and most important, kind of like the disciples with Jesus. For our story, in Genesis 43 to 45, the source of the conflict was Jacob's favoritism. Jacob married two wives and had two concubines, had children by each of them, and there was a lot of conflict. They were a divided family, arguing, fighting, jealous, even to the point of being, at one point, ready to kill their brother, selling him into slavery instead. And this passage shows how God has worked change in their hearts and lives, which gives us hope that He can do the same in our hearts and lives. And it also shows how God took their evil purposes and used them to accomplish what He wanted to accomplish instead. And so if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Genesis 43. We've read the first 14 verses, and from those, uh, it is just the background of what's going to come later in the story. Chapter 42, as you recall, they go down, they buy food. Joseph accuses them of being spies. They don't know that he's Joseph. And he keeps their brother Simeon as a uh, sort of a surety down payment uh, insurance policy that they're going to bring his youngest brother Benjamin back, his only brother Benjamin back with them. They wait until the food runs out because Jacob is unwilling to send them back right away. He doesn't want to risk Benjamin. He fears for his life. He doesn't want to lose. The only connection he has to his favorite wife, Rachel, who has died, he thinks Joseph has died. If Benjamin dies, those that he loves most are all gone. But their food has run out. And so the brothers plead with their father, let us go down to Egypt. I don't want to send Benjamin with you. That's the only way. He specifically said, we have to bring him back with us. And so then uh, Jacob says, all right, let's try to make it as favorable of a meeting as possible. Kind of like what he did with his brother Esau, right? Let's gather up some things that will be a good present, a generous gift, take twice as much money as before, take all of those things and Trust that, that God can work and cause him to have compassion on you. And by the end of verse 14, it seems that he has resigned himself to the reality that he may never see Benjamin again, but he realizes that if he does not risk Benjamin, none of them will survive. They take the present, they take the money, they take Benjamin, and they go to Egypt and stand before Joseph. 
How's Joseph going to respond? He says, prepare a meal for them. He says this to the steward, not to the brothers. Prepare a meal for them. He brings the men to Joseph's house. They're concerned. Now comes the reckoning for the money that he thinks we stole, for the fact that he accused us of being spies. We're not getting Simeon back. We're going to lose Benjamin. Probably all of us are going to be killed or imprisoned. But despite their fear, which they express in verse 18, it is because of the money, what is Joseph's response? Before we get there, they approach the steward and they say, I don't know what you're planning to do to us, but... Let's explain what happened the last time. We didn't steal the money. It, it was laying in the top of our bags. If we were trying to hide it, we would have put it somewhere else besides in our bags of grain, somewhere else besides in the top of it. Here's the money that was taken, uh, that, was, that was returned to us. We brought down other money for more food. We don't know who did this. And the steward says, Your God and the God of your father, verse 23, has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. We'll talk a little bit later in our discussion tonight about whether Joseph instructed his steward to lie or why is it that he has him say this to them. Then he brings Simeon out to them. So they expect we're going to be thrown in prison or killed or something like that. And instead he says, it's okay. God has blessed you. And then he says, here's your brother. So now the 11 of them are reunited and they come into Joseph's presence. They prepare the present, they wash up and get ready to go before Joseph, and they bow down before him. I think I said last week that last week was the fulfillment of Joseph's dream, but obviously Benjamin wasn't there, so the, the 11 bowing down is fulfilled here in this chapter, in chapter 43. Joseph asks, is this your youngest brother? He says, may God be gracious to you, my son, verse 29. And Joseph hurries out, for he is deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. We're going to see this several times in the course of this story. Joseph is so overcome with emotion that he weeps and has to leave. They served him by himself, them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Joseph does something that, again, astonishes them. He seats them before him, from the oldest to the youngest, and they are amazed by this. He takes portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Joseph showing favoritism here. It might seem like that at first glance. Why else would he give so much to Benjamin and not to them? I think that Joseph is doing something more than just showing favoritism to his closest blood relative. Joseph is testing their attitude toward Benjamin to see if it's the same as the attitude that they had toward him. What better way to see if they are still jealous of their youngest brother than to show him special favor and see what their response is? He, I think, is not concerned that they will try to do what they did to Benjamin that they wanted to do with Joseph. He's not concerned that they're going to kill Benjamin because of the fear of what would Jacob would do and because of the fear of Joseph and his oversight of the circumstance. So I don't think he's afraid for Benjamin's life, but it does provide an opportunity to test their loyalty. He intensifies the test even more as we come into chapter 44. Do the same thing again. 
put their money in their sacks. And not only that, but put my special cup that is clearly my cup into the sack of the youngest, Benjamin. And we look at this story and we say, what's with the money and the sacks and the cup and all of these sorts of things? It, it just seems strange to us. Uh, and as we discussed last week, I think there is an element of blessing. He is watching out for his family and providing their money back to them. There's a, there is also an element of testing, of judgment, of evaluating their attitude toward one another and their character to see whether it's changed in the 20-some years since he had seen them before. They leave. They have these things in their sacks of grain. They don't know it's in their sacks of grain. Joseph sends his steward to go pursue them. Verse 7, he speaks the words to them that Joseph told him to do in verses 4 to 5. Why have you repaid evil for good? Which, again, would I think have been a, uh, a rebuke to them in light of their former actions, right? They had done evil to Joseph. They had repaid evil for good toward Joseph. They haven't done it in this case, but that's the accusation that Joseph is bringing against them. Are they going to admit their guilt? Are they going to try to hide their, their guilt for this apparent uh, way in which they have sinned against Joseph, even though it's obviously a circumstance that he arranged? Notice their response in verse 7. Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? We brought you back money that we found in our sacks before and offered to give it to you. Why would we do the same thing again? We have to be pretty stupid thieves to do something like that, right? So their, their argument is, this doesn't make sense. We wouldn't have done this. They're so confident in it that they say, verse 9, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die and we also will be my Lord's slaves. This, I think, probably ought to call to mind for us Laban's accusation against Joseph's mother, Rachel, with regard to the household idols that she had stolen. Remember what, what was said then? Yeah, if you find it, you can, that, that person's worthy of death. Put them to death. They, it was not discovered in that case. In this case, they think nothing's going to be found because we haven't taken anything. Here, here, let's, let's open up all the sacks. And you can look in them, and you can see what's going to be there. So they open them up, and the, there's money in my sack. And now the steward is checking all of the bags. He starts with the oldest. He goes down to Benjamin. They're getting more and more confident, potentially, that they are innocent, because what possible thing would there be for it to be in any of their belongings? But probably also an element of fear and concern building, too, because... We didn't expect to find the money in the sacks either, and now here it is again. They get to Benjamin's. And the steward says, okay, um, this one will be my slave, who, with whomever it is found. And when he finds it in Benjamin's sack, verse 13, they tear their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. They had an easy out, right? Think about what they could have done. Benjamin goes back to Egypt, the one that we've been jealous of since potentially Joseph left. 
Our father dies of a broken heart, which we would feel bad about, but who then gets the inheritance? Reuben's the one that deserves the inheritance. He might have a shot at giving it, getting it, right? But they don't abandon their brother. They go back to Joseph to plead for his life. Joseph says, What is this you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? He's not revealing to them yet that this is God's work through him to test their family. He's contributing to the impression that he's just one of the Egyptians who practices a kind of, of magic arts. There's, this seems strange to us in our society, right? That people in other cultures would look at particular things and have superstitions about them. Um, there's a uh, particular lizard that I've done study on because it's an interesting lizard. has pretty colors, makes an interesting noise when it calls. Uh, the superstition, as I understand, in the place where it is from is that if you hear that noise that it makes, kind of a, uh, uh, like that noise, I believe that they take it as a sign of good luck. Some cultures take noises that animals make as a sign of bad luck, right? There's superstitions associated with all these things, right? Joseph is giving them the impression, I, I, here's my special cup. I put tea, I put whatever else in it, and the arrangement of how things fall in the liquid, the pattern of the oils on the surface, whatever else, reveals the future in some way. Now, what do we know about Joseph? How did he know the future? Because God revealed it to him. But it was a very common practice of pagan peoples to look for signs in the way that sticks fell, or bones fell, or, or things floated upon the surface of water, or other liquids, or even more disturbing things like that, like cutting animals open, and looking at their insides, and deriving some sort of meaning from it. Joseph was not saying that those superstitions were okay. He is merely going along with this test, giving them the impression that there's no possible way that you could have escaped me, because I would have known that you were going to do it before you did it. He's going to reveal later that it was God's hand that was at work in these sorts of things. And we'll talk more tonight about whether that was the right way to go about it or not. But it, this is what Joseph did. What can we say to my Lord? Notice Judah speaks up here. In the last time they came down, it was Reuben that was doing some of the speaking. Now it's Judah. Judah seems to have taken a measure of, a leader, of leadership, both in his response to their father at the beginning of chapter 43, and now in his defense of Benjamin. What does he say? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? Verse 16 of chapter 44. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. He's not talking about, I don't think, the cup. I think he probably remembers the fact that he was the one who said, let's get rid of Joseph. Here's some traders coming by. Let's sell him off. I think that's probably the iniquity that he has in mind there. And the apparent iniquity that he's been accused of by Joseph's steward. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. We are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. If, if he doesn't go back, none of us are going back. Verse 17. He said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Again, they have an opportunity to say, We tried. Let's head home. Judah doesn't. And uh, apparently there are, are Jewish traditions that have this 
um, portrayal of Judah as like the, the, this, this proud kingly figure who is offended and demanding what, he ought to, what Joseph ought to do for him. But that, that's not what the passage shows, is it? The passage shows Judah approaches him. O oh my Lord, may your servants please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. This is an attitude of humility and subservience and, and pleading, right? And he recounts what's taken place so far. You asked us if we had a father and a brother. We answered. You said bring him down. We said we can't do that. You said you must. And then he says, verse 30, Now therefore when I come to your servant my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up with the lad's life, when he sees the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant our father down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? The story has sort of built to a climax. Where is it going to go from here? What else can be done? And Judah, instead of saying, let Joseph's other brother become a slave and us go free, the self-serving kind of attitude that he had in chapter 37, what can we get out of this? Willingly offers himself to be the slave and stay perpetually in Egypt so that Benjamin can go back, so that Jacob... Israel does not die of sorrow so that their lives can be preserved. God's done something in Judah's heart and life, right? Then we come to chapter 45. Joseph can't control himself and says, Have everyone go out. So there was no man with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. He's, he's overcome. He's with... What would you be feeling in this circumstance? Joy at being reunited with his family, as he will be in a moment. Amazement in what God has done in their hearts and lives over the past 20 years. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Can it be Joseph? Is it really him? And then realizing that it is him... What would your response be? Complete and utter fear. The one that we have treated so horribly now has the opportunity to... the power of life and death over us. We are in far worse difficulty than they thought, we thought that we were. Joseph's words here, I think, we ought to reflect on. Joseph said to his brothers, chapter 45 and verse 4, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. What is Joseph's first assessment of God's purpose in this? To preserve life. Verse 5, or verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, 
and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8, Now therefore is not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So what has God done? God has made a way of provision. God has made a way of preserving their family. God has put Joseph in a position of power over the land of Egypt. That is what God has accomplished. Joseph's observation in verse 8 is probably the thing that we ought to reflect on for a moment. It's not you who sent me here, but God. Aren't we the ones who sold you into slavery? They were. But God was the one who accomplished what he was going to accomplish in and through this situation. There are parallels, I think, to what we see in Acts chapter 2, where it says, Peter rebuking the Israelites, you by wicked hands crucified Christ, but God made him the way of salvation for sinners. Acknowledgement of the guilt of those who had sinned and recognition of the far greater power of God to, to carry out his purpose despite the best or worst efforts of any one of us. That's the biblical balance in the intersection of our responsibility and God's power to carry out his plan. We are responsible for what we do. We can't say, well, God was going to do what he was going to do, so it didn't matter what I did. But we also can't say, well, but, but what I want to do, it's just going to happen and, and God can't stop me, because that clearly is a foolish way to think as well. So the biblical balance is, they sinned, but God accomplished his purpose. They wanted to harm Joseph, God did good to Joseph. They wanted to get rid of Joseph, and God not only didn't get rid of him, but God moved him from being a shepherd in a family in Canaan to being the second in command in what was probably at this time the mightiest nation on earth. So how do you respond to something like that? The only proper response is to be amazed at what God had done, to rejoice in what God had done, and to continue to follow the God who had done these things. And then Joseph continues and says, Go get your father. Tell my father that I am the Lord of all Egypt. Tell him that there's a place for you to live. Tell him that there is food for you to eat. Benjamin can be my witness that it is I who is speaking to you. Tell him of all the splendor in Egypt. And then, verse 14, he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Verse 16, the news pleases Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, go ahead and take down provisions, wagons, supplies, and bring them up. Pharaoh's sending uh, like a, a privileged, um, it's not just you guys come up here when you're able with what little you have left in the land of Canaan uh, after some things have died off because of the famine. This is like the, the royal treatment, the VIP treatment. He's sending them transportation and assurance of safety and going to collect them and bring them back here. And if you think that Pharaoh did this for anybody and everybody, I highly doubt that. God worked in Pharaoh's heart to care for 
his people. Joseph sends them off. Provisions in verse 21 through 23. Changes of clothes, 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes for Benjamin. A gift for his father, 10 donkeys with best, the best things of Egypt. 10 female donkeys with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. He sends his brothers away. As they leave, he says, do not quarrel on the journey. They went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. He was stunned. He did not believe them. And they told him all the words of Joseph, and he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent. The spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So what do we see from this passage? We see how these chapters contribute to the theme of life versus death that we saw begun in chapter 42. This idea that there is a threat to the lives of God's people, the famine, that if it is not dealt with, they will be gone and God's promises will have fallen to the ground and will not have kept His word. But God's put Joseph in the right place at the right time. Joseph doesn't make himself known in chapter 42. That doesn't take place until chapter 45. But as you read through these three chapters, there are a number of times, and as you work through the questions for tonight, there are a number of times that there is this contrast between life and death throughout these three chapters. But even though the main theme that was introduced in chapter 42 was this contrast between fear, famine, life and death, the one that I think is emphasized here is, is even a little bit more specific. And that is this idea that they go down to Egypt expecting to die, but what comes out of that encounter is not just life, but reunion and remnant. This idea that they are gathered with their family once more. God has taken their family when they've been separated, and he puts them back together on favorable terms, not fighting and feuding and jealous and all of those sorts of things. So there's this, re, there's this reunion of their family, reuniting of their family, but there's also this idea of remnant. God has provided for them far more than they thought would ever be possible. They thought, we're just buying food so we can live another year or so, and then we're going to have to do that again, then we're going to have to do that again. And God's saying, no, the thing that I promised to Abraham earlier in the book that you would end up in Egypt for four generations, that this is the time that I'm fulfilling that promise. I'm providing for you. I'm taking you from the place where I said you were going to go, and I'm going to put you in this place, and then I'm going to send you back there. And so this has sort of uh, a ripple effect as we go into the book of Exodus. Like it explains all the things of what go on in the book of Exodus. It looks back to the promise that God made to Abraham earlier in the book of Genesis. All of these things are coming together, right? So what does that have to do with us? Well, at one level, just the simple fact that we should be marveling at how God worked in this story. But I think we can do better than that, right? I think we can be more specific than that. What was the problem that God dealt with in the life of Jacob's family? It was jealousy. And specifically, it was jealousy due to favoritism. And so I think that we would be doing poorly 
at responding to this story if we didn't pause and examine our hearts and say, have I been showing favoritism to people? Have I been experiencing jealousy toward people because of favoritism or for some other reason? And has God done a work in my heart about that? And does God need to do a work in my heart about that? There ought to be a, a moment of self-examination in light of this story with regard to sin. There also ought to be some reflection on the parallels between what God is doing here on a small scale in Jacob's family and what God desires to do on a much greater scale throughout the whole world by means of his church through the gospel on the basis of what Christ has done. What do I mean by that? Jacob's family is fighting, right? Jealousy, anger, hatred, attempted murder, and then selling in slavery, all of these sorts of things. The whole world has that sort of division between God and the people in the world, right? There's this, there's this barrier of sin, of hatred, of, of enmity, of fighting, except it's not because God showed favoritism. It's because we've hated God and wanted to go our own way and that sort of thing, right? But if God can fix this problem, can God do something about this problem on a much larger scale? Yes. And so what does that look like? It looks like what Paul says in two passages in 2 Corinthians. So turn there with me if you would for a moment. I'm not saying that this is the main message of Genesis. I'm saying if we take the main message of these three chapters of Genesis and look at our own lives, here's what we ought to do about it. 2 Corinthians 2 says this at the end of the chapter, verse 14. Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things? We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And then we come to the end of chapter 5. The end of chapter 5, it says in verse 18, there's a number of good things to think about before that, but we'll just pick up in verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, if we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We talked in previous weeks about the parallels between what God does through Joseph and what God will, will and has done through Christ, right? And one of those parallels is this. In Christ we have forgiveness. In Joseph we have an example of forgiveness. In Jacob's family there is division and fighting and enmity that needs to be dealt with. And God reconciles them in this passage in Genesis 45 
Not perfectly. There's still questions by Genesis 50 of what's going to happen when our father dies. But for the most part, he accomplishes this reconciliation in Jacob's family on a small scale. The New Testament would say God wants to do this same kind of thing on a much greater scale. God versus the world. Perfect, sinful, division because of that sin. In Christ, we go from death to life. But there are still those for whom the gospel message is a sign of death. That's what 2 Corinthians 2 was saying. They hear the gospel message and they don't hear life and deliverance. They hear death and condemnation because that's what it is until they've received that message. But what is God doing through us? 2 Corinthians 5, God has reconciled us. The thing that he did in Jacob's family between the brothers He has done for us with God. We are reconciled to God. We can be reunited with God. We can be a part of God's family. But it doesn't stop there. The rest of the world is still, like Jacob's family, at war with God, fighting with God, hating God, not connected with God. And God says... Because of what Jesus has done, the work that I did through Jesus, which parallels in a spiritual way the physical work that he accomplished through through Joseph, because of what Jesus has done in you, I want you to go to that person who is at war with God and in the same position that Joseph's brothers were when they sold him into slavery... I want you to take the message of the gospel to those people, plead with them that God would then reconcile them to himself. And then this is where it ties into the song that we sang just before the message. What do we have in the church that shocks the world when it is a reality and becomes a reason for the world to mock the church when it's not? Actual unity, despite profound differences. We all come from different backgrounds, different um, family experiences, different uh, ways that our life has gone in terms of economics, in terms of education, in terms of interest, in terms of all those sorts of things. We come into the church, and like Paul says, in Colossians and in Ephesians and in other places. Those barriers, the greatest of which in the early church was the barrier between Jew and Gentile, God's dealt with that. Those barriers, like are you a man or a woman in a society where they were not viewed as equals? Those barriers, like were you a slave or a master in a society where there were slaves and masters? God has made it so that in the context of the church, we can gather as one, united around Christ and who He is. And the thing that makes that possible is the gospel, the word of reconciliation that God speaks through you and me. So when we read the story of Jacob and his brothers, we tend to look at it and we're like, oh, that's good, it worked out. All right, I'm going to go do the things I'm supposed to do now. But I'm saying, see the connection between what God did in their family and what God is doing in the world as a whole through us as His church. Which then 
leads us to a couple of other thoughts. One is, are you doing that? It's a word of reconciliation, but if that word is not spoken, what's not going to happen? The reconciliation is not going to happen. At least not by means of us. God can take someone else to speak that word. So, speak the gospel. The work that God did in Jacob's family, He can do in the people around you, even when you think it's in no way possible. Because that's a pretty surprising thing He did in the last few chapters of Genesis we've looked at, right? God can do it for that person near you as well. And then the other thing, not just speak the gospel, but live out the gospel in the context of our church assembly. Because, like Paul confronted the Corinthians about, the same sort of fighting that characterized Jacob's family can creep into the church family. And why doesn't it belong there? Because of the gospel work that God has already done, it has no place in the church. And so when things come into the, the, the fellowship of the church that create division and fighting and arguments and disunity, the goal is not to achieve a false unity because we pretend like there are no differences. That's what the world tries to do. The goal is to go back to the actual unity that we have because I'm connected with Jesus and everyone else who's connected with Jesus is connected with each other. That's the source of true unity. That's what we need to go back to. That's what we need to strive for. That's what we need to repent of if we've been thinking that we're all together in the church just because we've been here a long time or we have common interests or we like certain people. Those are not the main building blocks that tie the church together. It's Christ and our union with Him. So tell others this word of reconciliation and then don't undermine that word of reconciliation by acting like you're over here when you're over here. Right? And so as we look at this passage, it's more than just a story. God worked it out. Great. Happy to see that. Recognize the picture that it provides for us of the work that God is doing in salvation, the privilege that we have to be a part of that work, and the impact that our lives have on that work if we are united or not united. And so as we draw these things together and, and, and reflect on them, I, I trust that God will help us to think about um, the amazing work that he did in Jacob's family, but the no less and perhaps even more amazing work that hopefully he has done in your heart and life, that he continues to do in the life of our church, that he can do in the life of our church as we take his message to the world around us. What's the starting place for this? You've got to be trusting in Jesus. You can't say be reconciled to God when you're still his enemy. So that's the starting place. I trust we've all done that, that we have been reconciled to God by turning from our sin and believing in Jesus and the sacrifice that he paid for our sins. If you haven't, that's where you've got to start. But if you have, take this message to the world around you and live in such a way that the unity that you have with others in God's family is a testimony to the world around you not of hypocrisy of churches, not of whatever, but the family that God has designed the church to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths from your word. We pray that you would help us to live them out this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.